0: that God is in charge. Amen. And that's true. Uh, we can see that through a lot of the things that, uh, that we read in the Bible, a lot of the things that we experience. I've talked about grace, faith, good works, good and evil, and love, and God is in charge of all of those things. God doesn't need me or you or anybody else to save me or you or anybody else, or to do anything for any reason. Um, God can and does call us to do things, but He doesn't need us or desire us to do anything. It's because God doesn't want, God doesn't lack anything, and wanting is lacking. It's either a lack. Uh, Or a desire. You can use it as to describe something that's lacking or to describe something that you desire. God lacks nothing. He desires nothing because he's perfect. And there are many passages in the Bible where you can read about that. One is in Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which in heaven is perfect. So God doesn't want. Wanting, needing, and desiring things is a characteristic of humans, of people. And so, with that in mind, the message of Jesus Christ is not about you or me wanting, or you or me doing something to fulfill God's wants or needs or desires. It's good news that God is in charge That we can get a better understanding of our place and of God's role. Um, That we can put aside our wants and instead be with God, who is not wanting. We can trust that He's in charge. But to say that uh, God is in charge is not to say that the devil is not real, Um, the world is the devil's kingdom. And although the the hymn we just sang, the wonderful hymn, says that uh, this is my father's world, and that's certainly true. God made everything in the world. God made everything that was made. Um, But it is also true that the devil is the prince of the world. Uh, We read about that several times in the book of John. Um, Paul tells us that the devil is the god of this world. We read again from John and 1 John, uh, chapter 2, verse 16, that nothing of the world is of God. And nothing done in the world lasts. All the wisdom in the world is worthless, and the more you know about the world, the sadder you will get. And that's from Ecclesiastes, and that's uh, not in the New Testament, but it is a, I think, a... very helpful to get some perspective. And if you go to Ecclesiastes, the first chapter, it's not clear who wrote it. I think it's Solomon probably, but a son of David is how he's described. Starts the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Vanity. Um, and if you go to verse 12, it talks about how he was the king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. So it's natural to want to know the things under heaven, to want to have wisdom um, but it's a sore travail. <laughs> it's it's not very satisfying. I've seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Everything done under the sun is, in the end, not worth much of anything at all. It's just vanity and vexation of spirit. It's vapor. That which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. Things are as they are. Um, And and that's an important perspective to have. But people don't want to recognize that. People want things to be different. It's the way of the world, again, not only to want wisdom, but also to to have other wants and desires. Uh, And that desire is temptation. That's what what desire is, is a temptation. And Jesus dealt with temptation. So it's not wrong to desire. Jesus was perfect, and he dealt with temptation. Jesus is God, but he's also a man. And we read about Jesus' temptation in a couple of places in the book of Matthew, and the book of Luke, both in chapter 4. And they tell about how Jesus went into the desert and fasted. And after he was fasting for 40 days, he was hungry, which is not surprising. Um, if he's a man, that, that's a long time to go without eating. So if, he, if it took him 40 days to be hungry, then that's, that's very impressive. Um, but he hungered. And so we can read from Matthew, for example, in chapter four. Then was Jesus led up of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward unhungered. And so that's when the devil approaches Jesus to tempt him. And when this tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And that is, uh, in turn, a quote from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verses 2 to 3. Let go back. Bear with me for just a moment here. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep his, keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that, every man, that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. And so that's a speech that Moses was giving to the Israelites after they had been in the desert, not for 40 days, but for 40 years. And I think that what we can gather from both of these passages in Deuteronomy and in Matthew is that even if you're in the desert, God will provide. He won't provide stones. He'll provide something better, manna, something that's not a stone. When it's time to eat, there will be food. Um, And I think something that One way of looking at this is that the stones that the devil pointed to uh, were clearly stones. They were something that was made as stones. God made them to be stones. It's better to be hungry than to contradict God's word, the way that God has made things, and try to eat stones. That's not going to be a profitable thing to do. But if you're in the desert and there's nothing to eat but stones, God will provide something better like manna. That isn't the end of the temptations, of course. Uh, In Matthew, he uh, relates how the next temptation occurred. It's verse 5. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple. And saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. So Jesus quoted the Old Testament to the devil, and now the devil's quoting back. Um, But Jesus responds again, Uh, returning to the same speech of Moses, after the uh, Israelites were in the desert for 40 years, Jesus said unto him, it is written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And that's from Deuteronomy uh, chapter six, verse 16, which actually relates back to an even older uh, Part of scripture, which I'll get to. But so chapter six, verse 16, Ye shall not tempt the Lord your God as ye tempted him in Masa. So what's Masa? Masa is a place that we learned about in Exodus chapter 17. And this is what Exodus says, chapter 17. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin, which is a a place, after their journeys, according to the commandment of the Lord, and pitched in Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. So they had been in the desert for 40 years. They had nothing to eat. Came out of the desert into Rephidim. They had nothing to drink. And so the people complained. Wherefore, the people did chide with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, why chide ye with me? Wherefore, do ye tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water and the people murmured against Moses and said, wherefore, is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And so they're very upset um, that they've been brought out of the desert, now to a place where there's nothing to drink. And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto these people? They be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people and take with thee of the elders of Israel and thy rod wherewith thou smotest the river. Take in thine hand and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock. And there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And this is where Massa comes into it. And he, Moses, called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the chiding of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So they doubted the presence of the Lord, because they were hungry, and because they were thirsty. It was their hunger and their thirst, their needs and their desires that led them to believe that God was not with them. And Masa um, has a particular meaning uh, in in Hebrew. Masa means test and Meribah, the other name, place name that he gave it, uh, means quarrel. So this place was named after the test that the children of Israel gave to God. And God got them water from a rock. And when looking at the relationship, there's obviously a relationship between these two events, between Jesus being taken to the pinnacle of the temple in in Jerusalem and the children of Israel being without water in the desert. We know that there's a relationship because Jesus says there's one. Um... I think one way to look at that is that doing something to try to change the order of things the way that God has made them to prove that he's in charge. Um, Something like jumping off of a building to prove that God is in charge. Something like demanding that God make bread out of stones to prove that he's in charge, or demanding that God make water when there is none. That that is testing God, and that's putting ourselves before God, trying to put ourselves before God. Not believing that God is actually in charge. It's a way to believe that we're in charge. Anyway, that's, that's one way to look at it. And then moving on to the next temptation... Again, the devil taketh, this is uh, Matthew verse four, ch- or chapter 4, verse 8. Again, the tevil, devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And as I mentioned before, the kingdoms of the world, the devil is the prince of the world. So these kingdoms are of the devil. And he says so. And saith unto him, all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. And if we go to Luke, he says it a little bit more explicitly. Again, this is also Luke chapter 4, verse 6. And the devil said unto, this is also after taking him up to the mountain. It's in a different order from in uh, Matthew. The temptation is is before taking him up to the uh, pinnacle of the temple. The devil said unto him, all this power will I give thee in the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me. So the glory, all the power of the kingdoms of the world is delivered unto me, the devil. The glory of the kingdoms of the world is delivered unto me. The devil. So, the power and the glory behind those kingdoms is something that he's saying that he would give to Jesus if the Word of God would worship him. But Jesus is the truth, the way of God, the logic, and the reason of the universe. And Jesus rejected dominion over the kingdoms of the world. This is back to Matthew chapter four, verse ten. Then saith Jesus unto him, "Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, "Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve." And so that is again a, a, a quotation from Deuteronomy, the same speech that G, that uh, Moses was giving to the Israelites. If you look back at Deuteronomy chapter 6. So this all is has a relationship to the um, Israel being in the desert. Chapter 6 verse 13. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shalt swear by his name. And so the rejection by Jesus of dominion over the kingdoms of the world is important. I think that if he was to accept that dominion, that would be placing value on the kingdoms of the world. If, if Jesus is in charge of the kingdoms of the world or has the ruling power, the glory over the kingdoms of the world, then that's placing value on them, and that is worshiping them and the devil. But Jesus rejects that and instead places his faith in things made of God. And it's after that that the angels come and and minister to Jesus which is what the devil had uh, suggested should happen when he jumped off the, he, he was encouraged to jump off the top of the temple. So instead of trying to uh, test God or to get God to prove his power, Jesus waited until the right time, and then the angels came to help him. And again, later in Matthew, Jesus distinguishes again between what is God's and what is the world's. And that's when he talks about um, rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's and rendering unto God what is God's. Money, like the kingdoms of of the earth, of the world, is made by man in the image of man to honor man. And it is different in kind from what is God's. And so, One thing that I take from from this passage, from the temptations of Jesus, is that changing the world is not the point of Jesus' good news. If it was, Jesus would have done it. Instead, the point is to accept God, to accept that he is in charge, and to accept that the world is passing. God will provide, at the right time, And in the right way, and not necessarily on our schedule, but it will happen when it's time.
1: We'd like to look at Romans chapter 12. The last time that we spoke, it was out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And these two chapters sort of work together. They sort of uh, mirror each other, and there's a lot of good blessings that we might get out of looking at Romans chapter 12. We uh, went before that to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and spoke out of that chapter. And even though it's a backwards approach, it it makes a really good point that the gifts that are addressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and in Romans chapter 12, they're really of no benefit whatsoever, says they're void, and they have no benefit if it's not seasoned and motivated by love that love is the most important aspect, that yes, God gives gifts, God gives abilities, God gives talents to each and every one of his children, but the motivating factor and the source is the love of God and the love of each other. And if you don't have the love for your brothers and sisters and your love for the Lord, it doesn't matter how much knowledge you have. It doesn't matter how much ability you have. It doesn't matter how much truth you have. If you don't have the love of Christ in your heart, then it's of no avail. And so even though we took 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and took a backwards approach, it really is the foundation of the gifts that God gives his people to use those gifts. And he tells us, he says... If you don't, you can have all the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries. Uh, You could move mountains, have all faith. But if you have not charity, he says you're nothing. So you should desire and pray that God bless you with a heart of love. We also saw that there were three things that abide with us now. Faith, hope and charity and faith. We need here on this earth. uh, Hope we need here on this earth. Charity we need here on this earth, but charity is the only one that's going to continue on into heaven. Faith and hope will end here upon this earth when we pass from this life, but charity will continue on. So he talks about the greatest is charity. Let's go to Romans chapter 12, and we'll look at a few verses here. This is a great chapter, and I hope the Lord will bless it for a few minutes. Appreciate what Brother Ben has brought forth, and ask that you pray for me for a few minutes. The Apostle Paul starts out and he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Just sort of looking at this first verse right here, he says, first of all, what God is asking or instructing us to do is not unreasonable. It's a reasonable service to put our bodies as a living sacrifice. I believe that it's talking specifically about being in the house of God and dedicating ourselves to the service of God in the Lord's house. It doesn't have to be solely that, but it is especially that. What does it simply mean? It means that we put as a priority the Lord's house and worshiping the Lord. Elder Sonny Powell's used to say that uh, there can be a whole lot of seconds in our life, but there can only be one first. And that's seeking the Lord and his kingdom and his righteousness. Maybe a whole lot of seconds, but there's one first. And so what he says right here is that the service that he is encouraging us in is a reasonable service. God's not asking us to do something that's unreasonable. He says, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God. God is a righteous God. God is a just God. God is a God of justice. But Paul starts out right here, and it's not really a fire and brimstone message and saying, you've got to be there. He says, I'm beseeching you to present yourself, present your bodies, which is a reasonable service as a living sacrifice. And he said, I'm beseeching you to do this by the mercies of God. He says that ought to be your motivating factor for desiring to worship God, the mercies of almighty God. Every single one of us can look back upon our life and we can witness how God has been so merciful to each and every one of us. And he's saying that the mercies that God has shown you in your salvation, in regeneration, in giving you a hope of eternal life, in giving you grace to live by here and grace to take you home to glory, that that has to be your motivation for serving God. And therefore it shouldn't be a burden to go to church, but you ought to want to go to church and have a great desire to be there with your brothers and sisters in Christ because of the mercies of almighty God. That ought to be the motivating factor. He says, present your bodies. I think that's interesting that he says that I've I've heard folks say, well, I'm, I'm I'm there in feeling. Well, maybe that's why he says it. He says we're to present our bodies. That just simply means we have to get up and get dressed and get in the car and take that 20 or 30 or 60 minute drive and get to church. And then you presented your body, not just your mind, not just your desires. Not just I'm there in heart or I'm there in spirit, but you're there in body. And that's what he's saying right there. And that's probably why he says that is so that we can fulfill that. He says, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. One of the great blessings that I've witnessed among elderly folks in our congregation through the years is that They're such an inspiration and such a blessing. And it's amazing how that they would make church a priority. And oftentimes they'd be the first ones there. I'll never forget the experience that we had uh, one Sunday morning. Uh, We got to church about 10 10 after 10, something like that. And it was Brother Compton and myself. And he was over 100 at the time. And we were some of the first ones that were here. And then the Dixons come in. They're in their 90s. Sister Perry, up in her 90s. And then Brother Polk and uh, Brother Jackson and the different ones, they come in and they're in their 80s. And then just a few minutes before 1030, the 70-year-olds come in, and it was almost like it was planned, but I thought, what an inspiration that the oldest are an example to the rest of us and an encouragement to the rest of us, and by 1030, all the senior citizens were here at church. And it was a great encouragement and a great blessing. And it was almost like it was planned. I don't know if it was or not. Maybe they planned it. I don't know. But it it was a blessing and it encouraged me to do it. Now, I have to tell you, I've helped 100-year-olds and 90-year-olds and 80-year-olds get to church. And it's really not that easy. It was hard probably for every single one of them. And probably every single one of them had to factor in a fudge factor. You know what that is? That's about a fifteen or twenty or thirty minute factor to allow something to go wrong. Because if something's gonna go wrong to cause you to be late for church, it's gonna happen on Sunday morning. Devil is gonna there's gonna be something that happens. I preached three times in my life about being in church on time. And the three times that I preached that, the very next sermon, I was late to church. (laughs) Twice I had a flat. And another time I lost my keys. I remember losing my keys and I remember I thought I can't blame it on the kids I can't blame it on the dog because I don't have a dog and I ended up having to call Brother Steve Parker to come pick me up for church because I couldn't find the car keys and Brother Steve picked me up and then I said oh by the way I hope you don't mind but we need to go pick up Sister Hayes and we need to go pick up Sister Perry and so not only was I late but I was late picking those sisters up but Thankfully, Steve and Kathy helped out in that. The Lord says, I want you to present. He wants our bodies. And he said, it's not an unreasonable service. He says, and then he says, and be not conformed to this world. This one is really, really hard. James chapter 1, verse 27 tells us about pure religion and undefiled is to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. This is the hard part right here. He says, be not conformed to this world. This world and brother Ben has brought up some excellent points about the world in which we're living in. But this world can be very enticing. That's what Satan can use to draw us away from our focus and attention upon the Lord, upon his church and his people, all the things that are out in the world. I heard one young person told their pastor one time, it wasn't here, it was down south, said, well, I, I'm just, uh, Brother Danny and I were talking about this the other day, I, I'm just so busy, I just don't have time to read the Bible. And the pastor responded and told him, says, well, you're just simply too busy. If you don't have time to read the Bible, then you're just simply too busy. Heard about a minister of old that said that he had so much to do that day. So many challenges, so many obstacles that he had to, to and task to perform that day. He said he had so much to do that he had to pray three hours for all of the stuff that he had to do. Well, that's how we get our perspective in order. He says, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. Well, how in the world can we be transformed in this world? We live in this world. We're bombarded with this world. Used to, you just, it used to be influenced by um, the newspaper or the magazines or the radio. And then I remember uh, Brother Sonny Piles preaching, and and when TV began to broaden all of their uh, their programs, I remember in his preaching he would refer to it as television. And he called it NB Sewer, CB Sewer, and AB Sewer. And you know what? I think he was kind of right in what he had, and he was ahead of his time. But used to, that was the only influence. And now we have the internet and we have all other forms of media that influence our mind. How in the world can we be renewed in our mind? Only through God's word and his brother Phil prayed in his prayer through seeking the Lord and praying to the Lord and reading his word that we can be renewed in our mind. That's where the problem is. I don't know about you, but... That's the battle of the mind. I'm so glad that that doesn't happen to any of you all. But that's where the problem generally is, is in the mind. I remember Sister Perry, such a blessing to the very end, such a great blessing. I remember on the way to church one day, I probably mentioned this to you. I said, how is it that you're always, always, she was 103 at the time. How is it you're always so positive? You always see the good side of everything. You're such an inspiration, such a motivation. She said, I learned a long time ago if when I got up in the morning, first thing, I had a thankful heart and I expressed my thanksgiving to the Lord, and then if I got my mind in the right direction, she said it affected the rest of the day. Brother David Piles preached his sister's funeral. I saw the funeral, wanted to go, wasn't able to go, but saw it online. It was wonderful, wonderful sermon said that his dad used an example of when David and Lynn were growing up and and as they were young kids in high school. And he told this story in his preaching. He said, David looks at the world in black and white. And Lynn looks at it in full color. And he said, I'll give you the example. He said, if if there's a, a football game at Graham, Texas on Friday night... And David comes home, and Brother Sonny says, How was the game? David would say, We won. And that'd be the end of it. And he said, Lynn would come right behind him and say, Well, how was the game? And she would start telling about all the people she saw there. She'd talk about who was working at the concession stand. She'd talk about the cheerleaders. She'd talk about her friends. And then she might talk about the football game, even though Brother David said she didn't know anything about that, but she would tell in vivid color about how wonderful it was. And Brother David said, that's how she lived her life. She wanted to live life in full color and see the beauty of God rather than just black and white. Paul's saying right here, we need to have our minds transformed by the renewing of our mind. And he says, improve. Some people say, well, I just don't know what God's will is. Well, there are some things you're not ever going to know. God is not going to reveal everything to you. In fact, God doesn't give you all. You may have some spiritual gifts, but God doesn't give you all abilities and all gifts. He gives everybody some, but he doesn't give anybody all But right here, he says, what you might prove, what is that perfect will of God, the acceptable good and perfect will of God. There's some things we don't understand. But right here, he says, there's some things we can. We can seek to know what God's will is for us in our life. We can seek to know what is that good and what is that acceptable and what is that perfect will of God in our life. Basically saying right here, what is it that God would have me to do? me That's every one of us right here. And he says, God's not going to hide that from you. It's not going to be a mystery. It's not going to be something that God's not going to show you. It's not going to be something that's so deep or over your head that you can't know what God's will for your life is for you. Now, he might not tell you whether it be a fireman or a banker or a mailman or, or a doctor or a dentist or something like that. But he can sure give you the the abilities while you're pursuing that. And God can open the door and God can close doors for you just as much as he can open them. So here's another one right here. He says, first of all, we're to renew our minds and we do it by seeking to know what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. But then he says, just before you start looking at the individual gifts in detail, He says, I want to remind you of something right here. For I say that through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Wow. I love it when Brother Danny is bringing a message and he starts out and he says, the purpose here is to exalt Christ and to minimize self. The purpose is to draw not attention to ourself, but the purpose is to draw it unto Christ. I remember a minister putting it this way. He said, I believe that the purpose, one of the purposes of the minister of the gospel is to paint a picture of Christ just as perfectly as he has the ability to do so and hold that picture up, but hold it up in such a way that you don't even show your fingertips when you're holding the portrait up that's in line with what Brother Danny's saying right there. Here he says that we're not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think soberly. That means just rightly or seriously or correctly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. So he begins to talk about, in in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about the whole body coming together and how that, that It it supplies the benefit to the body and it's honoring to God. But here he tells us, he says, basically, even in the gifts that God's given you, the talents that God's given you, you don't have it all. And what you have is not because of you, but what you have is in spite of you. And therefore, You can't at all glory in the ability or talent or gift that you have and begin to think that you're really somebody when really and truly we're not other than what God has given to us, what God bestows upon us. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. God blesses us with it. And he says right here, according as he hath dealt to every man, the measure of faith. God is the one that deals it out. God is the author of it. God can shut it off just like that if he chose to do that. I liked what Brother Ben said, that God doesn't really need us. He doesn't. God owns the cattle of a thousand hills. God owns it all. He doesn't really need us. But God allows us to serve him. And he gives us the talents and the gifts and the abilities to serve him. And if we don't use it, if we don't use what God's given to us, he might give it to somebody else. If we use it, we have the example that he may bless us and bless us even with more if we use what we have. Sometimes we look at what others have and we say, well, I wish I had that ability I I, I wish I could, I wish I could, I wish I could speak like Brother Danny. Wish I could speak like Ronald Lawrence, Mike Goins. I, I wish I could understand the scriptures like Sonny Piles. There's not everybody that's a Sonny Piles, everybody that's a Ronald Lawrence, everybody that's a Michael Goins. Every single person has their own different gifts and talents and abilities. And the purpose is not that we desire what other people have, but that we use what God has given each one of us that we have. That's what we're required to do. He says not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Then he, he begins to highlight more of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. For we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. I've heard some ministers that highlight that this refers not solely, but uh, 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 very much to the minister and to the ministry when he's talking about prophesying. Basically opening up God's word, teaching and and exhorting the Lord's people. And he's basically saying that whatever ability God has given you to use, use it to the glory of almighty God. And don't forget that God is the author of it. That God is the one that gives you the ability. It also comes down and it teaches us also the lesson that if we're using the gift that we have, we shouldn't try to uh, mimic the gift that somebody else has. You use what God's given you, your gift. There's not any two of us that are exactly alike. Everybody is completely different. And you know what? That's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of it. I, I have to say, I am so glad you're not all like me. I am. And I have to say, I'm so glad that we're not all like you. I mean, I'm glad that God has made us different, but that we all come together and it makes this beautiful church body or family. And it's because God makes us all special in our own way. He says, we're many yet in one body in Christ and where everyone members one of another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that's given us, Whether prophecy let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. And this one, some ministers lean toward thinking this is primarily for the role of deacons. I believe that it certainly can be uh, referred to as the responsibility of deacons, but I believe it also can be all of us, He says, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering for he that teacheth on teaching. I believe that it can refer to each one of us having a special. That doesn't mean that everybody's role is to stand up in the pulpit and speak. Uh, Your gift may be going to visit folks in the hospital. It may be sending cards for people when they're sick. It may be taking a meal to somebody that's in need. It may be being perceptive of folks that have a need. It's amazing how that sometimes we are much more perceptive than other times. And we ought to pray that God would bless us to recognize when there are needs among us. And then that he would use us with the abilities that we have to help meet those needs. So he basically is saying, if you have the gift of ministering, I believe we all ought to minister. But I believe that uh, especially if God's given you a heart and a desire and an ability, you ought to use it. Or ministry, let us wait on ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about that in the the gift of the ministry of teaching and exhorting one another. Another one here, verse 8, or he that exhorteth on exhortation. Um, You know, I, I, I believe that that doesn't necessarily mean that you're the, uh, uh, the you're the one that tells everybody when they do something wrong I think it's perfectly fine for you to tell them and encourage them when they do something right my first boss when I was 15 years old uh, hit, the way he motivated us was by telling us all the stuff that we did wrong I mean that's, you got to where that's all you expected and I remember I was probably almost 30 years old before I thought, you know what? I think there's another way. Not that it, it certainly there's a time to point out when we're doing something wrong, but you don't dwell on that. The Apostle Paul, when the Apostle Paul instructs us that we're doing something wrong, do you know what he does first? He, he goes in first and he says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God. He says, I love you in Christ. You're a child of the king. I love you, and because I love you, I'm coming to you to share some things to you. But he starts off, and he tells them how important they are, and how special they are, and how much he loves them. And then he exhorts them. But it doesn't necessarily mean in exhorting that you're there to tell everybody all the wrong stuff that they're doing. Elder Jack Johnson told me one time, he says, You remember that when you're pointing a finger to other folks, you've got three fingers or more pointing back at yourself. If you remember that... It's going to be a lot easier when you approach other folks. He says, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, or he that giveth. I had a grandmother, and she didn't think anything was worth having unless she could give it away. I mean, to her grandkids, to her children, to other folks. If she had something, she thought that they would benefit from it, it went to them. I remember going to visit them one time, my grandfather and grandmother, they had an old vinyl recliner. And my grandfather had taken duct tape. I mean, everybody uh, is familiar with duct tape, you can use use that for just about anything. I remember the, the recliner had a rip in it. My grandfather just got a big piece of gray duct tape and put on there. Rather than going out and getting them a new recliner, They'd rather help their grandkids with college funds, or they would rather take somebody out to eat, or they'd rather do something like that. But that old worn recliner was just fine with some duct tape on it. Some folks have a special heart and ability just to give, to give what God's given them, to give of themselves. And did you know what? You can't outgive God. You can't. You go out, and you go try to help somebody, and you find somebody that you can help and encourage, and did you know what? You're going to leave more encouraged when you get through. You may have, you may have taken them a meal. You may have taken them uh, a gift or a card or a note of encouragement. You may have just gone to visit them. I remember when we'd go over and see Sister Lowry over at, the, at your grandmother's facility in Habitat Grace. She'd go see Sister Larry to encourage Sister Larry and those little people there. And I tell you what, you couldn't help but leave encouraged. That's just the way God does it. One day Jared's grandmother wanted us to come sing some Christmas songs for the folks and it just so happened that I think, I think it was just Grace and Jared and I and maybe one other person and I I can't Brother Danny and that we were really hoping for a whole lot more, but it was just the four of us. And do you know what? You, you would have thought that, that we were rock stars in there. I'm telling you, that's how they treated us. Those poor old people, they were so happy that, that we came to share some time with them. And we left more encouraged when we left there. Weren't you more uplifted than when you went in? That's how God does it. You go try to help somebody and you're not going to leave empty handed. You're going to leave more full than before you went. Now, if you stay home, you're going to miss out on that. You have to go and be there and do it. And then you're going to be blessed when you leave. Well, he says right here, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity Means not bringing attention to self. He that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy uh, with cheerfulness. I think that's I think that's a real good point right there. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Scriptures teach us that we're to be merciful and long-suffering with one another, but we're not supposed to do it grudgingly. We're not supposed to have a desire to help people and do it because we're just going checking off the boxes. And saying, I'm doing it because that's what the scripture tells me to do. He says, you do it and you do it with a cheerful heart. You don't do it with a bitter heart, resentful heart. You do it and you do it unto the Lord. He says, with cheerfulness. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love. In honor, preferring one another. Not to be slothful in business, be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, prayer, distributing to the necessity of the saints, being given to hospitality. It just continues to go on down. There's 21 verses. You'd do well to go home and read all of those verses. Outstanding encouragement to each one of us. It's not telling us at all how to get to heaven. It's not telling us... How to get more stars in our crown? It's telling us how to encourage and help one another and honor God in doing that. And it tells us how to use the gifts that God's given us. And use them for each other, for the benefit of each other, and for the glory of Almighty God. And for us not to get exalted in it, not to get arrogant in it, not to get proud. But to realize that that's just simply a blessing that God has given us. God's made you very, very special. By the gifts that he's given you. He has. Now your purpose is to use what he's given you. To his honor and his glory. May God bless you.